It is the Michael Bourne Identity, Episode 8. I'm James. Uh, I'm extremely thrilled and honored to welcome my next guest. Uh, someone that you know and that you know he hates, our collective favorite team, <clears throat> the Houston Astros. Uh, he is Keith Law. Keith, how you been? I've been pretty good, all things considered. How about you? Yeah, there's the, that's a really big all things considered, isn't it? Yes. It's Yeah. It, yeah. it encompasses a lot. There's yes. everything. Like like the the most poignant thing that I've that I've seen <clears throat> over the last you know nine or ten months was someone said you know I, I feel like we're all collectively in like the speeding up part of come on Eileen like where things are just, <laughs> it, it just felt extremely it felt extremely true yep. uh, okay so let's let's just jump right into it because I, I want to be mindful of your time and uh, and all of that good stuff mm-hmm. the okay I just read Smart Baseball ah. It, How was I, it? I enjoyed it very much. I oh, thought I'm glad it, to hear that. I thought it was. I I I really enjoyed it. So, <clears throat> uh, if you get it from Amazon, your favorite independent bookstore, your library, wherever you get books, I uh, I thought it, it it was a very quick read. And the something I want to ask you about a little bit later is is your reading habits because I'm thoroughly impressed. Um, so I I guess my question was about the actual process of writing it. You get into some pretty heady topics. Um, how hard was it to sort of walk the line between catching the non-sabermetric folks up while still appealing to the hardcore fan? Like, was there, did a lot of thought go into, okay, I've got to play this down the middle as much as I can. Like, how did, how, how were you able to create that balance? So the pitch, the original pitch for the book was, this is the book for the lay audience. This okay. is not the Tom Tango at all. You know, theirs is just called the book, which is great. I mean, I have it somewhere. I think it might be upstairs, but it's in the house, I swear. And it's not, you know, my goal was to write something because I think the thing I do well, I'm not really a sabermetrician. I get lumped in with those guys, but I haven't done much of that work in like 14 years now since I left the Blue Jays. And, and also on top of that, like, there are people who just do it better even than I ever did. I think the thing I can really do, you know, sort of the service I provide is to put this stuff in pretty plain English for people to understand. I can take concepts that might be a little abstruse and then just translate them so that you don't have to have much of a stats background. And so that was the pitch. That was the pitch from the beginning. And, and it was kind of the pitch for the second book for the inside game too. But there I was doing it with the behavioral economics as opposed to with sabermetrics. It's the same idea. I'm going to take harder concepts and make them easy to understand and hopefully make them somewhat entertaining. So the thing I had to be mindful of was just never talk down to the reader. I don't like doing that anyway, but it's easy to do. You know, it's easy to go from didactic where you're just teaching to almost like pedantic where you're like really talking down and like picking nits and like making them feel like you're, you're being patronizing at that point. So I, I figured if I didn't do that, if I made sure that my tone was light, but um, not uh, in any way condescending, that I wouldn't lose people who already knew the stuff. Like lots of people have read that book and told me that they liked it, even though they pretty much knew most of the stuff I was talking about. And I, I like to figure that, I, I assume that that's because hopefully I told good stories or used good examples and that the writing never came across that I was talking down to anybody, that I was making anyone feel like... Um, that I was being, you know, that I was like 
elementary school teacher at that point. That's not the tone I'm ever going for in my writing. It's something I often try to watch for in my own writing though. When I feel like I'm explaining something, I have to be talking. Like when I do, when I've done book signings, remember before the pandemic, we actually had book signings. I go to a bookstore. (laughs) I could meet readers and I could shake their hands. It was really weird. Maybe someday we'll do that again. Yes, right? Yeah. I can't imagine doing that now. I know, right? It's like other people are poison, right? I, you're all contagious. <laughs> I mean, I kind of thought that before, but it's even more so now. Right. So anyway, so I, you know, I hope that answers your question. It was like, it was a tone that it came pretty naturally to me, but, but at the same time, I was always trying to keep it in mind too. Don't talk down to the reader. Don't let yourself slip into anything that might come across as condescending. It's not what I, it's not who I want to be. And it was definitely not what I was trying to do in that book. Sure. And I know, and, and it, like I, that's sort of what I, as far as the actual writing went, that that's what I, that's kind of what I thought. Like, I was like, I'm learning. So I know some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm learning some new things, but I don't feel like, yeah, I don't feel like the second grader who's, you know, just being condescended to. So I, I, right. I, I, I was just curious about that. So I <clears throat> have been working for a number of years on my own little writing project uh, and uh, as someone who appreciates bizarre nonfiction, I've, I've sort of got a, a, a book in mind that I've got hundreds of pages of notes out of just plain cure. And I feel like the more I talk about it, the more I have to commit myself to actually writing it. And it's not just sort of something I do on the side. How long did it take you? I guess, what is the, the how does the book process go? Like, how long did it take you to <laughs> write it? Like how, I mean, just the manuscript and and all of that, because I have a, a timetable in my head, but I'm, I, I don't know if it's realistic. <laughs> I don't know if it's realistic. So both my books took about the same amount of time. The second book, um, I, let, me, let me explain the first book and then explain the second book. So Smart Baseball was the first book. Right. From first word typed into the computer. Here's me simulating typing. It's a shame that the viewers <laughs> can't see this. Um, that was in March of whatever year that was, 2016. Um, which feels like a lifetime ago. Right. And I finally finished, turned in the last original content, not counting any editing, uh, in December. So it's nine months. It was really just about nine months. No, it was not bad. Now, Smart Baseball was a little bit easier because a lot of that was stuff that had been in my head for years, things I talked about. I repurposed a couple of things I'd written at ESPN, rewrote them from scratch, obviously, but I'd already delved into some of those topics. The Inside Game, book number two, was easier because I'd done it, right? I had done the thing. First of all, I knew I was capable of doing it, which is always the biggest thing for me in a new project like that. I was like, can I actually do this? I don't think I can do this. What? Who am I to think I would do this? (laughs) And then to, so I had that then, but the problem was I had to, there was a lot more independent research. I'd spent a lot of time. I spent more time than anything researching that book, uh, reading academic journal articles. Um, from economics and psychology, there's just kind of an overlay. It's you know that subject of that book is really sits in the intersection between behavioral economics and cognitive psychology, and so I had to spend a lot of time reading that stuff, which is not as much as I read. I don't read stuff like that very much, and that stuff is not written to be read. I'm convinced it's not. It is written. <laughs> it is written to confuse. Like that is a thing. <laughs> I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I know several people who work in academia who tell me that's not really accurate and I don't believe them. <laughs> so so you, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, so that what I ended up doing was spending more time that summer reading stuff and procrastinating. And then in September wrote half the book, like literally oh, okay. 
wrote half the book in a month, if not more. I'm not sure I would advise anyone to do it that way. I literally <laughs> had a day. I'll never forget. It was the day after Labor Day. So kids were back at school. My girlfriend returned to uh you know, her to her workplace. So I was alone in the house for the first time in several weeks. And I wrote 4,000 words in a day, which Yo. is still my record. And the next day I slept. It was like I had, <laughs> like I had just run 10 miles, which I've also actually never done in my life, but <laughs> it was exhausting. But then I was like, yo, I can probably do a pretty good clip with this because I'd already done the work, right? The research was done. The stuff was in my head. And now it's just like, I got to get it out. Right. And absolutely plowed through to the point where I got into October. I was like, I'm nearly done actually. And now I can sort of take my time with some of the other things like the good decisions chapter. Then I go back and write the intro and the conclusion. I always write those things last. Mm -hmm. um, once the meat of the book or, or whatever the project is, once the meat is done, I go write the intro and the conclusion afterwards. So that was much easier because by that point I had, because I went through such a grind in September, but got to a point where it was easier to, to, slow down and finish up. And so I think I actually may have finished that book in a shorter time from start to finish, but the shape of how I wrote and how much I wrote at what times was very different in book two versus book one. That's it. That's interesting because, <clears throat> so I've, I've been talking to a publisher and they're interested and they're like, yeah, just, you know, shoot over an intro and, mm -hmm. you know, a, a working chapter list and, and all that good stuff. And, and I, and I thought like, I, I think I need to write the book before I write the introduction. So the, to hear yeah. you say, intro and conclusion, you know, comes last. Yep. That's, that's really, in, <clears throat> that's actually really good to know. All right. So now I have a little bit better of an idea of what's ahead of me. And I will tell you one thing too, in the, the original proposal. So the first book was my first book. Um, and so I wrote a, a full proposal with the help of my literary agent. I had an agent, uh, still have that agent. And he sent me a sample of another proposal and said, this is, these are the things it has to have. And I wrote a sample chapter that more or less ended up in the book. It was you know, pretty well edited and cleaned up, but it ended up in the book. Okay. And so I think um, that, uh, you know, if you're working, and this is to anybody who's considering working on a first book proposal, the intro is, maybe somebody asks for it. No, when he asked me for an intro, they asked me for like a description, give like the executive summary, the elevator pitch. But it was really, they wanted to see a sample of the beat of the book, give us a sample chapter, a sample essay. And I ended up writing much of what turned out to be a chapter. And then also just wrote another essay that was like 900 words. And I said, I, I don't know what this is. Maybe it's part of a chapter. Maybe it's a sidebar. It's just an example of the kind of things I want to say in this book. You, in a nonfiction book, that that would be enough to should be enough to get across what you're trying to accomplish. That's cool. <clears throat> All right. Now. Okay. Before my mind spins off in that direction. Um, <laughs> you, so you talked about your sort of your reading habits and I subscribe to your newsletter <clears throat> and it, you, you know, you're, you're always saying, you know, <clears throat> I read this, this is my review. I feel like this year has completely just shattered my attention span do you make a concerted effort to say, I'm going to put my phone down for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. I'm going to, I'm going to turn off all the, you know, the noises on phone and watch and computer and whatnot. And I'm going to sit down and read. Like, is that, is that something that, that you do? Yes, absolutely. I treat uh, my reading time. I try to read for an hour a day. Now, of course okay. I don't always do that. 
and it's not a single, it's not an hour straight. Like typically mm-hmm. I read 10, 15 minutes before bed is the last thing I do most nights before bed. Um, I often now that I just, the schedule I've gotten on is when everyone's out of the house on days when there's nobody here, especially I will read for a half an hour before really doing anything else. Um, I'll have my breakfast and coffee and it's quiet, but I'm not really super awake by that point. Not a morning <laughs> person at all. Um, and so I find that reading is often the best. One is just, I, it, I, it, like, to me, it's like self-care. Like it's, it right. feels very meditative to me. It puts me in a good mind, uh, good frame of mind. It can be very relaxing. I get very focused on reading in a way that I don't often get focused on a lot of other activities, but also, you know, so much of what I try to do is writing, whether it's work writing or blog writing or now board game writing. I've been doing a lot of that lately. Mm-hmm. Spending a half an hour reading definitely puts me in a good mindset to sit and write. Um, as opposed to, I'm going to sit down, answer a bunch of emails at the beginning of the day. Cause I do that and I'm like, wow, this is what my life's come to, huh? I'm answering emails. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, yes, I answer emails often a little later than I should, but to me, that is not a good first activity of the day. That is much more of a, I'm slumping now. I need to take a break and do something else. Let me go answer a couple of emails. You know, let me go answer the critical emails and let the non-critical ones fester in the back of the (laughs) inbox a little longer. I'm, I'm currently reading uh, Maria Konnikova's The Biggest Bluff, and, and it's, it's fantastic. Uh, what, are, what are you reading now? Before I hit you with all these Ast- Astros questions. Yeah, I'm actually going to make sure I get the author's uh, David Wondrich. The book is called Imbibe. And I had wanted to get this book forever. It was like on my Amazon wish list and my horrible family members never bought it for me. Um, (laughs) It is a book. He's a cocktail historian. It is now on its at least its second edition. And it is very much a history of the American cocktail specifically. And he goes through, and I mean, he goes way back. This is a guy who's obviously spent a lot of time researching the history of American drink culture. And- a lot of it is myth busting and a lot of it is you know revisiting recipes from the 1800s and how even some people can recreate lost ingredients from that era and a lot of them are a lot of these things sound horrible by the way i do <laughs> i like cocktails very much um i like distilled spirits i'm very much a rum drinker and i read some of this stuff i'm like wow that sounds horrible the amount of sugar that people put in those drinks in the 1800s yes the things that you would get laughed at like in sort of that that's not a manly drink i mean whatever the sh- you drink an old-fashioned the sugar in an old-fashioned right shut up Men drink old fashioned. <laughs> like this is the stupidest thing i've ever heard however <laughs> if you look back at some of these 19th century recipes there's a tremendous amount of sugar in them when sugar was probably pretty expensive too so i find it right. like really bizarre and also they just sound unpalatable like at that point you could have been drinking a cheap swill and you wouldn't have known the difference. But anyway, it's, it, there's a lot, it's not so much a read, like it's not a narrative read. It's like a bunch of tiny little essays on this spirit or this particular drink and, you know, the history of a punch and the difference between a punch and a sling. And I mean, it'd be great for bar trivia, I guess, but it's really (laughs) like, I love this stuff. I love that history of food, history of drink, any stuff. I've read multiple books on the history of rum um, and this came so highly regarded, but highly recommended by Hugh Atchison had David Wondrich on his podcast and a couple of mixologists I follow on Twitter have raved about this book. So it's, and it's definitely lived up to, lived up to the advanced billing. So I can't, <clears throat> there are three things that I cannot be trusted with. And I'm old enough to know 
that that if I have <laughs> these things in the house, like it's it's it, I'll be divorced and homeless mm-hmm. and unemployed within like six months. And it's it's video games, it is betting mm-hmm. on sports, and it's it's bourbon. If I if wow. there is if there is bourbon in the house, it'll be four o'clock in the morning, and I'm still watching like World War II documentaries, and, mm-hmm. and I'm just gonna stay up until that bottle is gone. And I don't know if that's just that's just like I know I can't be trusted with those things. Is there is is there anything like that that as you've gotten a little bit older, you know, like ooh, no, I got to stay away from that. Um, I just don't really play video games for that same reason. Um, mm-hmm. The last video game I would say I spent any significant amount of time playing was Baldur's Gate. Well, the, the series, the original Baldur's Gate series, which for folks who don't know, it's a role-playing game. Um, and the story was amazing. And I spent, I easily spent a hundred plus hours. That's probably <laughs> on the low side. I was not a father by that point. My own defense, um, yeah. I was, did not have any kids. So that's very different. Um, but I... Can I swear on the podcast? Is that okay? Sure, yeah. I played the shit out of those games. Absolutely. <laughs> Downloaded the mods, went back, got somebody. You could use the Baldur's Gate 2 engine to go back and play Baldur's Gate 1. So you're damn right I did that. Used an excuse to play the whole thing straight through again. I was like, I should really just not do that. That shouldn't be a thing. Um, there is a new Baldur's Gate game out. I have not tried it. Um I will at some point because I have to, but I'm yeah. pretty careful with that stuff. I, I limit myself mostly to digital adaptations of board games, which tend to be much shorter. Sure. I might play them multiple times in succession, but it's not the same. I don't get lost in a story and suddenly I like forget to eat. <laughs> yeah. I uh, So I started my Astros blog in 2008. And after a couple of months, my wife... And I I also was not a father at this point, but she was like, look, you can choose between one of two things. You can either have the PlayStation two, or you can do this blog thing like, but, but not both. So pick one. Uh, And I went with the, I went with the blog. And uh, so my, but my dad, it's weird. Like my dad has, you know, a a PS4. And, and so when we go down, I'm generally allowed one, you know, one night when we go visit Mm -hmm. my dad, that, that Mm -hmm. I can play call of duty until two 30, three o'clock in the morning. So Ah, yeah. I get, yeah, I get, I get my fix. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. So she, yeah, she knows she meets me. She meets me in the middle uh, there. All right. Astros time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's wrong to say that an overwhelming number of Astros fans absolutely adored Jeff Luno. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how the events of the last year have, you know, I don't know what his popularity you know, what was it? What were his approval numbers before hmm. November of 2019? And, and sure. what is it now? Um, but we also don't really. And while I think, you know, when they're like, oh, yeah, we're getting this dude from the from the Rays, James Click. Uh, you know, I think most of us thought, well, all right, well, that's a smart organization. Um, and he's a smart guy from a smart organization. So that's cool. But we don't we still don't really know what what to expect from Click. You know, there haven't been any major additions didn't really do much at the trade deadline what can you tell everyone listening uh and me about you know your experience with with click or or sort of what you Mm -hmm. expect on how he would operate i've known him since he was still doing stuff for baseball prospectus what's that 15 years ago okay Uh, and i think the world i think he's great i think he's really bright um i think he's got a great personality for that kind of role too i think he's kind of a um 
more of a sort of soft-spoken leader. Like he's not going to be a fiery person. He's not going to be loud in front of, you know, to get in front of a microphone, but I think it's going to be a, um, I, I think, and from what I've heard from people who've worked with him in the race too, he can, he can run a room. He can command a room when he needs to. And he does it with his intelligence and with the degree to which he listens to people. And the other thing I would really highlight too is he's one of the first GMs who's just come up straight through the analytics side of the business. And, and yet the scouts he worked with in Tampa Bay all have great things to say about him. And if you talk to him about players, and I have over the years, he really couches it in the vernacular of scouting, at least as much as he does in the vernacular of the R&D side, which to me is essential. I think anybody, if I was going to hire anybody uh, as a GM, and Mets, I think, just did one of these two. They hired Jared Porter, who has come up through the scouting side, but has worked for three organizations, the Red Sox, a year with the Cubs, and now the Mike Hayes and Diamondbacks that have invested pretty heavily in analytics. And he was with the Red Sox when Theo took over and built that analytics team. And then he went to the Diamondbacks with Hazen when there was basically nothing. Dave Stewart's dad, you know, they, it was like a cupboard under the stairs was the analytics department. And so uh, Porter has come through two organizations where they had to build that stuff. Uh, and Click was a huge part of building one of the best R&D teams, I think, in all of baseball in Tampa Bay. So I think he has the right ingredients to be very successful in Houston. I do not know what kind of resources he's going to be given. I, I don't think particularly highly of the Astros owner. Uh, <laughs> and fair. also, I would love to know, uh, you know, because of when he came in, because when Click came in, we don't really know what he's going to do in terms of his staff, right? Jeff Luno's idea was he basically tried to McKinsey the hell out of the thing and get right. rid of almost everybody. And the, the Astros, it's like a skeleton crew baseball ops department right now. I don't think that's sustainable. I certainly don't think it's very smart. Mm -hmm. We have no idea what Click's going to do, what he'll be allowed to do or what he wants to do. And we may not find that out for another several months until the next off season because of the economic situation right now, which whether we believe the owners or not, no one's going to be spending a lot of money to staff back up at this point in time. Right. <clears throat> I think one of the, the things that, that's, that stood out to me about Click's tenure, it, it wasn't in any move that he made. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it was this random, very random interview because I, I think, and I, I think I, I mentioned this on, on, I mentioned a lot of things on Twitter, but yes. basically AJ Hinch pulled Zach Grinke from game seven of the 2019 world series. Mm -hmm. And then everything in the world literally went to hell. I mean, it yeah. was, you know, they, they lose that game, the Mike fires thing. The, and, and I regret back in January <laughs> saying, man, I, I wish something would come along where no one would talk about the Astros anymore. And then, uh, <laughs> um, and so, but one of the things that, that really stood out to me was when dusty Baker, uh, who I still think was a, was the smart move, you know, in the interim, you know, coming out of the Mike Fires scandal, I, th I think I, I, I can I can understand the the move towards Dusty Baker, but when when Dusty Baker let Zach Grinky finish an inning in the in the postseason, and Grinky said after the game, like it was really nice to have someone that actually trusted me, and and then a couple of days later, um, you know, Grinky was at, you know, there was, there was a clarification where, and then, and then click came out and said, no, I, I talked to him about it. And I just listened. I, I wanted to hear what the hall of fame pitcher had to say. Uh, and, and there, there, there wasn't a whole lot of that 
sort of the human side of trusting, you know, the people that you pay an awful lot of money uh, to, 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 to play. The, the fact that he came out as like, no, nah, I just, yeah, we talked about it. And I, I just wanted to hear him out and hear what he had mm-hmm. to say. Like that stood out to me because that's, that is not something that Jeff Luno ever would have said. Right. And I, I've known Jeff a long time also. And, you know, I want to be careful what I say also, because the, his situation is a sort of very different one. And right. obviously I, I don't think it's a secret. He interviewed me for a job that I turned down and I, I've always, you know, since then, I mean, hesitated to say what I think about the team and about their decisions, but I try to be a little more circumspect in talking about the personalities involved. But I think what you said is a fair assessment, is a very fair assessment. Luna was not known for strong interpersonal skills and people who worked for him often say they respected his intelligence greatly and trusted him on a lot of major decisions, but didn't always love how he worked, dealt with people working beneath him. Okay. Uh, and I'm not going to press you any further on that. Um, even though that j- journalistically, that might be the, the right <laughs> thing to do. I'm going to back off. Uh, <clears throat> what the hell is up with Forrest Whitley? Like, is he still, is he still considered the number one prospect in the organization? I, I think so. Um, you know, I guess a little bit of that is sort of, well, who else would there be at that point? But also, I still think he's pretty good. I have seen him. Um, now, actually, let me preface that. We didn't see him this year, right? right? So, and supposedly he was dealing with some minor tenderness or soreness. I don't remember exactly how they described it. But yeah, that could be a big concern, right? If he just can't, you know, pitchers who, obviously that could turn into something huge and it could turn into absolutely nothing. Set that aside for a moment. The last time I saw Whitley, I guess it was Fall League of 19, and the command wasn't very good, but the stuff was still absolutely ridiculous. And I would in no way, shape, or form be that quick to give up on a pitcher with his size, a good delivery, and that kind of an arsenal of stuff. What he seems to be missing, I would I think are things that can be can be taught. Maybe he needs a different regime. Maybe this is a situation where all the cuts that the Astros had made were actually hurting them. Uh, you know, I don't think their player development was bad, but I don't think it was great under mm-hmm. Jeff Luno. If they staff back up there, does that help a guy like Whitley and other players like him who maybe hadn't progressed since they got into the Astros system? We, we don't know for sure, but I'm very comfortable at least saying that's a real possibility. We're going to see a change in philosophy and we'll probably philosophy and we will probably see different personnel. But I can't give up on Whitley. I don't like giving up on pitchers with that kind of pure stuff. Even though every once in a while I'll be wrong, some of those guys just don't pan out, but I feel like at some point in the next couple of years Forrest Whitley is going to be a very very good major league starter. So okay, so <clears throat> and I had this theory and it was just <laughs> based on what I had seen and no, I, I don't, I don't have <clears throat> hashtag sources. Like I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm not totally interested in that or terribly interested in that. It'd be cool to, you know, break something, I guess. But, but the, sort of what I saw was that Whitley got invited to spring training in 2018. Mm-hmm. They put his locker next to Justin Verlander. Uh, Verlander sort of takes him under his wing. He gets sent back to minor league camp and he kind of got butt hurt. And, and, and that sort of, you know, kind of, he, and he kind of spiraled from there and, mm-hmm. and, you know, yes, I, I don't believe they're making anything up about <clears throat> injuries and soreness or whatnot, but, it, but especially this year when, you know, there are guys getting called up to pitching games in 2020 and I'm, and I'm 
I'm like, I, th- I think I know who that is. Uh, Humberto yeah. Castellanos, like, he, yeah, he was in Quad Cities, I think. Like, like it was Luis it was, Garcia was a real prospect, but did anybody think he was going to start games for them this year? Right. I didn't, and I, I had didn't. him stuffed. I, in yeah. no way did I think that guy was going to see the big leagues this year. I mean, there, there's a ton like Enoli Paredes or, you know, Chris. Yes. Christian Javier, I want to ask you about some of these guys uh, mm-hmm. here in a minute, but you know, the, just, you know, the names that were, I'm like, wow, wait a second. Wasn't, yeah, I think I remember him and, you know, he had a good game against the Beloit snappers, you know, or, or whatever. Um, it was just kind of surprising that in, in a, in a year like this, in a season we just finished up when you're just trying to get to the end of 60 games, that there's just nothing from Forrest Whitley. And, <laughs> and it, it's, it's just, it's just weird. I don't know. Well, it's, you know, Padres fans have sort of had similar questions about why didn't we see Mackenzie Gore? We saw Luis Patino. Gore's a better prospect. He's a little more advanced. He's left-handed, probably worth a little bit of an edge. Why didn't we see him? I don't have a good answer to that, and I don't like it, right? I don't like that that question is still out there, and we don't have a clear answer of why. And I did have somebody with another team say to me, hey, why haven't we seen Mackenzie Gore right now? We'd like to know. You know, is something wrong? I don't know that anything is seriously wrong, but obviously they saw something at the alternate site they didn't like, whether it was injuries or, or strike throwing, whatever it was. By not calling a guy like that up, the teams are definitely telegraphing something. Right. So, okay, with, with the guys that we, we just talked about a couple of them, Christian Javier, Enoli mm-hmm. uh, Paredes, Framber Valdez, and, and Framber's been one of these guys that, we've we've all kind of had this inside joke where on any given start or any given night you don't know if he's going to go out there and frambush the lineup or if we're nah. going to get if we're going to get framboozled like there's all these sorts of you know it's good i like that. um i mean on that that's a good joke <laughs> what did i i guess who uh, of those three who stood out who stood out to you who were you not expecting to turn in the performance that they did so wait who were the three framber okay javier framber. Javier and, and Noli Paredes. Oh, and Noli Paredes. Um, Javier definitely beat my expectations. Okay. Um, and what I thought, because I wrote about him early too, I'm like, this stuff's fine. It's not elite. He really hides the ball well. Now, mm. there's some argument that he has. I'm going to, I don't even want to say exactly what it was. There was something, maybe it was a spin axis. There's something fairly specific about his fastball that makes it tougher to hit. My argument on that is, I'm not sure we have a lot of data on that right now. We certainly don't have a large sample of pitchers who have this particular characteristic, which is not to say it's not real. I just like to see evidence. What I really liked from what I saw from Javier as the season progressed was multiple times then he saw, after I wrote about him, he faced an opponent for the second time. And in just about, I actually pulled up his game logs to make sure I was correct. I think in pretty much every example, uh, he pitched as well the second time or better. And that to me is the best possible sign of all, right? That this is not a trick. It's not right. just hitters are going to adjust. They'll figure out where the ball is coming from or that, you know, it's an unusual delivery and they haven't seen it before, whatever. The fact that he didn't even face the greatest competition the second time around. I could pick holes in this, but the fact is one, two, three, four different teams. He made at least two starts against each of them. And the second start against Arizona was maybe a tick worse, but not a whole lot worse. And the others were probably better. And that to me is the best possible sign because he was in most of those cases, he'd be facing a lot of the same hitters and it wasn't that far apart in time. And he did just as well when you would expect him probably to do, when you expect a lot of pitchers to do worse, but if he was just a deception guy, he would have done worse. He didn't. That makes me a lot more optimistic. Makes me want to revise my original assessment and say, Nope, actually I like this guy's outlook a lot more. 
Is that a Brent, is that attributed to Brent Strom? I mean, Brent Strom's attained sort of this wizard status yeah. among Astros. Yes. <laughs> is that, is that Strom? Is that the player? Is that, is that both? Is that the scouting department? Like who gets, who gets the credit for stuff like that? I think this is the player. And if you want to credit the international department who signed him, it was quite some time ago. I think it was, would have been like 2013 or so when he was 16, I'm just going off mm-hmm. his age here. I don't know exactly when he signed, but he's always had numbers like that, right? He's always had pretty good strikeout rates and very, and uh, except for maybe one year here, I guess a uh, two year, when he got to triple A, he had a little bit of trouble with throwing strikes, but then he was better this year with throwing strikes. Right. And his strikeout rates have been consistently pretty good for a guy who doesn't throw super hard, doesn't have knockout stuff. So I'm going to assume sort of retroactively here, whatever this characteristic is on his fastball slash deception in his delivery that's probably always been there and then you would just go back and say well credit to the scouts who originally signed him probably for not a lot of money because i doubt he threw very hard as an amateur player right i think he's going to be a pretty serviceable big league starter for a while is the astros system as i mean the the we all understand you know the the trades for verlander Mm -hmm. uh garrett cole Zach Greinke, you know, that that took a hit you know the the system took a hit with those trades is the system as bad as you know, we're, we're sort of reading about, or, or is it, is there context to that? System is down. Definitely. Um, it, and what did not help was they, they had not drafted well under Luno because they spent no money on it. They just basically stopped caring about the draft. Um, that's probably a little over, a little bit of an exaggeration. Let me rephrase that. They did not put anywhere near the same resources into the draft that pretty much every other team did. And a lot of it was just, they stopped scouting. And they would take basically just take like a lot of good college players with pretty good stats. Or, you know, if they took a high school player, it was because they saw something good from him on TrackMan, for example. And Seth Beer, I sort of got it, but I certainly now, I mean, a year after they drafted him, it was pretty clear that that was a mistake to burn a first round pick on that guy. And I, mm-hmm. they used a lot of, you know, late first round picks, end of the first round picks on guys with basically no ceiling. And if you're a championship club too, it's not great to go after those low ceiling guys because they're probably never going to play for you. You'd better right. be sure that they're going to have some trade value. And I think in a lot of cases, those guys didn't generate the kind of trade value you want. A lot of other clubs, Boston, for example, they have had uh, this philosophy and the Yankees have always had this philosophy too. It doesn't matter if we're winning right now. We are going to try to get the highest ceiling guys we can because they don't play for us. I remember a Dodgers executive telling me this years ago, the Yankees will say this privately we can't take mediocre players because they're never going to suit up for us. We take guys we think have a chance to play every day for our big club. And that Mm -hmm. means going for ceiling. We may disagree on what qualifies as ceiling with some of these guys, but that's their philosophy. And for Houston to continue to draft like that, basically drafting off the algorithm without really bothering to scout these players, I think produced some pretty subpar drafts. I think the results of their last few drafts under Luno are not going to turn out to be very good. Uh, You know, the Corey Lee pick, for example, I think that was Luno's last first round pick. Wasn't even on my top 100. I don't think he was on Eric's top 100 over at Fangraphs either. Mm-hmm. Uh, he definitely wasn't on MLBs. I remember Jonathan Mayo and I talking about that pick afterwards and <laughs> just saying, wow, that was kind of out of nowhere. I'd seen Corey Lee. It's not like I didn't know who he was. I just didn't think he was that kind of prospect. Sure. I did think it was interesting this year that obviously they didn't have the first round pick, but it seemed like with the first pick, taking a high school pitcher out of the Bronx, that was a ceiling guy. I don't know if Alex Sanchez is going to turn out to be a great pick. But I like the fact that picking in the middle of the second round, maybe towards the end of the second round, they went for ceiling. That guy, if he turns into, if he hits his ceiling, he plays for the for the Astros. Or 
he gets traded for something that can help the Astros go back to the World Series. Who last one, and then I'll and then I'll I'll let you go. Um, <laughs> is there sort of a, a an Astros prospect that, and maybe you just maybe you just said it, someone that's that's under the radar, uh, and and I think you know most Astros fans had a much better grasp of the farm system prior to 2017. Sure. Because that's really all there was to focus on, uh, with the exception of 2015. But is, is there someone that's sort of under the radar that 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 you're in your mind? You're like, mm, all right, this this could this could be someone like some like someone like a Brett Conine, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is there anyone that, that you're sort of keeping your eye on that maybe we just haven't given much thought to? I would have said Luis Garcia, but he got to the big leagues, um, right. so you all know what he is. And I, you know, I hope you I hope Astros fans saw what I saw and what I'd heard that maybe kind of stuff him in my rankings. Um, and I think I'm pretty, I believe he still qualifies. I haven't looked to make sure of it, but I think he's also, you know, he'll still be ranked pretty highly. I will say Hunter Brown, the kid they took out of who did not have a great pro debut, by the way, but the kid they took out of Wayne state, he was a D two kid who was bumping a hundred as an amateur, but it was D two, right? How do you take seriously the stats of a pitcher throwing that hard in D two when most hitters, don't see a lot of pitching like that. Right. And he got out into pro ball though. I got a lot of pretty good reports very quickly between the summer and instructs. Like how the heck did this kid slip to whatever he was second, third, fifth round. He was a fifth round pick. Yeah. How did this guy slip to the fifth round? Um, he would be one to watch. Obviously he's got to throw more strikes. He did not throw strikes that first summer. And then we didn't see him at all this year, mm-hmm. but he would be the guy who, if he came out this year, if that was just a fatigue thing, he comes out this year, He's throwing strikes. We know he's got the velocity. He's got a really good breaking ball. He could very much shoot up any kind of rankings of the prospects in the in the Astros system. And that would make, if he's what I heard he was at the end of 2019, he'd be a top three or four prospect in the system pretty quickly. He is Keith Law. He is a, a fabulous writer. You can catch him at The Athletic, and they're always running specials to where you can get a, a good deal on a subscription. I have went on a major unsubscribing binge. Uh, on Black Monday, I realized, or you know, Cyber Monday, I realized how how many different services <laughs> I actually subscribe to. I was like, oh, I don't need that. Let's cancel that. But The Athletic made the cut. Um, and, and so catch up with Keith Law. Uh, check out smart baseball check out the inside game catch him at the athletic sign up for his newsletter if you want tips on cool stuff to read cool stuff to play uh and uh all of that good stuff so keith have a very merry christmas thank you so much for your time and uh stay safe and healthy my pleasure thanks for having me